and welcome to the Harold Bud episode, the reposting. Just a quick couple technical notes. Um, when we recorded this, we were in Harold's apartment in South Pasadena, and he was playing to the room, being myself and my wife who was taking photos. So he wasn't always up very on top of the mic, so sometimes he's a little quiet or quieter than me, who was right on the mic. Um, so keep that in mind when you listen. Perhaps wear headphones so you can catch all of what Harold's saying. It's not too bad. But, um, or just have the volume to an, you'll, you'll figure it out. But I just wanted to let you know it was early on in the podcast and I was still figuring things out. Please enjoy. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer, and this is a reposting of the Harold Budd episode. Um, I've never had to do an episode where I eulogize a past guest and what I would consider a friend. Um, so I, I don't know if there's a right way to do this or how one does it. Um, but I guess I'm just gonna sort of. Um, tell my story of of my knowing of Harold Budd and what a unique and uh, incredible man he was. And just before I start, that, that I, not that this is a, it's a no-brainer, but that was some Harold Budd music that played us in. Uh, as the time I record this, I didn't decide on a song yet, so whatever the song will be, it's in the show notes. Um, Harold Budd had a massive body of work and a beautiful body of work and he was a very unique and brilliant man um i first met harold when i was working at auntie m's kitchen in eagle rock circa 2005 and um the restaurant was a pretty unique place it was owned and operated by terry wall who was a former punk musician and she hired a lot of musicians and artists and performers to as her staff. So there was this great community of creative people. And while we would work, we would exchange, we'd talk about music and exchange ideas and joke around. And it was a, it was a very special place, a place that I've made lifelong friends at, people who I've considered family, like Dan Aide and Donna Coppola and Megan Donovan and Stacey Keel, uh, people who I am in touch with regularly. It was a family. And the first time Harold came in when I was working, the place was a buzz. People were like, Harold's here, Harold's here, Harold's here. And uh, to my embarrassment, I was not fully aware of who Harold Budd was or his music. Uh, And my friend Dan Aide, who I worked with, um, was like, you don't know Harold Budd? And he lent me some CDs and I began to enjoy Harold's music and like the rest of the staff, uh, once I got to know Harold, like when Harold would come in, I too would be excited because he was this I beaming energy of joy and friendliness, and he was always welcoming. And everyone would go to his table and say hello, and it, 
it was just he was just one of those magnetic guys that everybody wanted to to talk to and to get his attention frankly was you felt special like there was just something about when you talked to Harold you f- felt like he cared and i mean he didn't feel that way he that's what he cared and he took an interest in what your life was and what you were doing and it was this uh he, he was a just a gift of a human being and eventually like Harold moved out of the Eagle Rock neighborhood and didn't go to Auntie M's so much. But oddly, at that same time, I started hanging out in South Pass. Um, I would go there after writing and sort of have many celebrations of my creativity. (laughs) And I would have wine at this uh, little French cafe called Nicole's or coffee at this place called Buster's that's no longer there. And I began running into Harold Budd when I was going to Nicole's and he would always invite me to sit with him and he would always buy me a glass of wine or two or three and we would talk for an hour and we'd talk about you know everything music art life his son and you just there was an excitement when you saw Harold and you knew you were going to have a great conversation and a fun time and learn something I mean about music and art and I don't know. He was just fascinating. So when I started the podcast, it was it was a no-brainer that the, I was like, the next time I see Harold, I'm going to ask him. And I was always nervous. Like, And it wasn't Harold. Harold was a, a man who put you at comfort. But he was just... You know, when somebody has such a vast body of work and who's renowned by like the people that you idolize, you know, Brian Eno and, and Daniel Lanois, these people, you know, he's praised by giants and so that just you it's a little hard not to be in awe (laughs) of him even though he was the kindest gentlest man and um and once I met my wife Kelly too we would also bump into Harold and he would buy us both wine and we would talk and when I asked Harold to do the podcast he invited us to his uh, place in South Pasadena and I took Kelly with me to take photos. Um, I posted one on my Instagram. Uh, I'm going to see if I can find some more. I'm not the most organized guy, but I, hopefully I can post some more, especially with this episode. But, um, you know, Harold was... Harold, he was great. I honestly haven't had the time to re-listen to the episode, but I remember it being really exciting and just... He was hilarious, and he was having a blast, and he kept playing to Kelly. I don't know if it's because she had a camera or because she was uh, a lady, because I could tell from some of Harold's stories that he he liked the ladies, <laughs> as he should. Um, but it was, she got some really great photos, and it was just this magical couple hours that we got to spend with Harold in, in his place with him sharing stories and uh and then you know we went about away and I would bump into Harold occasionally at um at Nicole's and uh and it's funny because literally 2 weeks ago or a few weeks ago uh, I I met Tim Rutilli at Nicole's cuz he lives in South Pass and it was before covid amped up again and we had you know, we had a coffee outside and we talked. But the whole time I was headed to Nicole's, I was 
I was thinking, God, I hope I bump into Harold while I'm there. And I also wanted to bump into Harold because I wanted to see Harold. It, it, had, it has been a few years. And I also was like, how great would it be for Tim Rutilli and Harold Budd to talk about music and and for me to just, you know, sit there and listen. I don't even have to even participate in that conversation. Um, sadly, I, you know, I didn't bump into Harold. Uh, but it's, I, it's funny. I thought of him earlier this week and I missed him and I was wondering what he was up to. And then two days later, my friend Donna texted me and told me the sad, sad news. And all I can... And, you know, I didn't write this out. I, I hope I am expressing this well. But I think the one thing I really want to get across is that um, he was this beautiful man who, I swear, the only time I... The only memory I have of him, he's he was always smiling. He was always happy to see you. He was welcoming to anybody who wanted to talk to him and willing to share and talk. And it was just, um, you know, and this this is a highly creative, busy man. And he was just always generous in every aspect. And I, and it's funny because in a lot of the obituary photos and his press photos, he's, there's these very serious photos of him. And it's not the Harold Bud I knew or spent time with because he was just always a joyous, joyous man. And I'm sad that he's gone and I wish I could have seen him one more time, but that's, um, that's how I guess life is. And I guess it's important to remember that so we can share with the people who are in our lives, how much they mean to us when we are in their presence, because you don't know if it's going to be the last time. So please enjoy this conversation with uh, Harold Budd, a true genius and a wonderful human being. Avant-garde and minimalist. And uh, does that bother you at all or does that... It annoys the hell out of me. <laughs> Yeah, it does. I mean, the worst the worst of them all was 25 years ago when it was New Age. And that really frosted me. I just detested that one. Yeah, that's I mean, that has a very ugly connotation, New Age. Very very reprehensible. And so I guess I mean, I knew a little bit of the, but it was some of it was was kind of god awful. Of the New Age stuff? <laughs> I remember just hearing a lot of sort of... Um, really bad music. Yeah, really bad music. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Wh- why did they keep us just lumping things in like that? Is that just because... Convenience. Not laziness? Yes. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Do you, do you, despi- <laughs> do you despise la- the labels of music in general, or does that... Or do, like, would you label your what you do exactly? No, I wouldn't. It's no, a, I don't. I don't try. It's just more of um, an exploration. Would you? No. 
No. I have I have no interest in labeling at all. <laughs> I leave that for other people. But some of the best things have happened in society by labeling that I've meant that sarcastically. That Yeah. Well, anyway, it's not my concern. So. <laughs> and Edgar, I've heard that you started off as a drummer in, in Bebop and there's that Yes, that's true. I can't remember who they said you, you drummed with. Albert Eiler. Oh, right. And you were doing a lot of bebop. And I was that... doing an awful lot of bebop on the, in the uh, clubs in South Central L.A. But that's back when I was 17, 18 years old. That, was that like, uh, could you give me a, a year? Is that like when like Mingus and Chet Baker and all those guys were? Yes. So you must have, uh, that must have been. I, I, uh, hold on. <laughs> I wasn't terribly good at it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I never, and I, 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 I knew that um, um, even though I loved bebop and I, you know, worshipped every um, note that Lenny Tristano played and stuff like that, and still do, I um, knew that my life was not happening there because I didn't have the skills. I just didn't. And I, I didn't have... I didn't have that kind of interest and drive to keep keep that alive. I felt I felt it was just too limiting in a in 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 a way. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad about that because uh, it meant that at a young age I had a um, I had a a more sound vision about what was happening in the world, that I was not willing to limit myself to something that was um, not, not terribly open to new ideas or stuff, art, art stuff. You know, it was, it was, it was, um, if I, if I had been a painter, it would be like I'm, looking at Jackson Pollock every day, and that's not enough. It's just not enough. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I have a dog that makes a guest appearance in a lot of my shows, so... <laughs> okay, that's, that's, it's, that's cool. So that's what happens when you're a little bit more bare bones. Uh, and did you, had you had already been working with a piano, or was that a transition from drums to... I never, never... Uh, learned. Um, I, I never took a piano lesson in my in my life. You you have to understand that uh, when I how how can I put it? I started college late, like age twenty one, because I knew if I didn't do something, I would um, uh, live in shit forever. Because I didn't have any skills, and I had, um, well, what can I say? Anyway, I I enrolled in a few classes at LACC on North uh, Vermont back in the mid-50s, and I thought to myself, well, I'll be a filmmaker or a painter or something in the arts, but I didn't know what, really. And since I was a 
musician, and I'm putting that word in quotes, um, I thought I'd take some classes in uh, harmony and counterpoint. Well, it turned out that I took to that like water, and I, I gave up any notion of being a filmmaker or a painter, because I was, I, I just loved the discovery of a world that I knew nothing about, especially, especially um, 16th century counterpoint, and which, which I, I mean, that was an eye-opener. I mean, never dreamed there was a life like that at any time, ever. And um, I knew a lot about various painters. I, I knew a lot about 20th century art, because that was always a kind of a hip thing among me and my friends. We would get postcards of something, mostly Paul Clay or that sort of thing, you know. And um, so, um, so that 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 changed me. Um, and finally, when I got to uh, big college. After, after four years of, of living before then, um, I was at, I was in a generation of American composers who uh, had were in the process of breaking away from the European tradition, which was learning how to play a piano or learning how to play anything, and but. It was mostly conceptual. Like my my uh, big turnaround was uh, discovering, along with everybody else, uh, John Cage and Morton Feldman and Earl Brown, and that school of American composers, which uh, uh, changed everything for everybody who, who were kind of hip, shall we say, or thought they were. <laughs> it's probably more, yeah, probably more. Thought. <laughs> yeah, you told some story of uh, John Cage, uh, a teacher getting fired at your university because that's correct. I, absolutely. Did I tell you that? No, you, I've read it in some. Oh yes, yes, <laughs> yes. It, it, it is quite true. It is absolutely quite true. This, his name was Gerald Strang, and I went to study at the college where he was a, the head of the department because I had at one time had a 12-inch record, and it was um, something, the California Percussion School, <clears throat> and it was uh, pieces by Harry Parch, um, Lou Harrison, John Cage, Colin McPhee, and Gerald Strang. And I thought to myself, well, this is, this is great. He teaches here in Southern California? Bitch, and I'm going to go there. <laughs> And so, so I did. And he brought in he brought in a lot of different artists. But when he brought in John Cage, there was such a ruckus among the conservative faculty members that he he lost his job. That's such a crazy. Yes, it was absolutely crazy. Yes, I know that. But it was my my first exposure to really dumb ass teachers. Mm -hmm. Um, I always suspected they were there, but by God, they were. 
you know. <laughs> it's interesting because a lot of the artists I've talked to, uh, they all sort of talk poorly about their formal education. Like uh, Lori Lipton was like, I don't know if you're aware of her art, but it's, but she's like, I didn't learn anything in school. She's like, I just was in school to bide my time. No, no that's, that's quite true. Yeah, I, I learned what I really needed to learn from somebody who uh, was smarter than I was, like uh, years earlier, 16th century counterpoint. Mm-hmm. I mean, I couldn't have picked that up myself. But so what? I never used it anyway. It had had it was just formative. That's all, you know. It's it's. I didn't I didn't learn a thing about art or music. That I was never I was never taught anything that I that I really kept or, or needed ever. Yeah, that's it's. Do you just think that's just sort of it's an innate thing within an individual, and then I don't to, know about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a little bit uh, metaphysical for me. I don't know. <laughs> well, or I guess maybe the drive and the desire to sort of explore. Oh, always that. Yeah. Oh, I'm shit. I'm still at it. Oh God, yes. Yeah, because you said another thing that you said you rarely listen to music, but you would prefer to go look at art. I don't know if that's still absolutely true. And is that where you draw most of your inspiration from? No. I don't know where inspiration comes from. Um, I have a house in Joshua Tree that's uh, built by an architect named uh, Josh uh, Schweitzer. And it's a rather famous house in, in Joshua Tree. It's uh, a desert house, which I've lived in for nine years. And I'm always asked, well, you must be, um, I mean, the desert must be really hugely important to you, you know, because it's the desert. Absolutely not. (laughs) In fact, I rather dislike it. But, But the house that I'm in and the vibes from that guy that built it are I mean that boy man that generated a lot of different albums and I just sat there on windy nights you know thinking of thinking of stuff (laughs) you know titles Um, and I, I got serious about writing poetry and Yeah, that's interesting because you said the thing about it because you grew up in the desert, didn't you? Grow up in the partly, yeah, that's true. And I think a lot of people always assume that, like, if you grow up and they're like, "Oh, did that have an influence on your?" No, it didn't. Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Too too much horse yet. (laughs) But then that's an interesting thing you were saying. Like you would think of titles because a lot of times, and I'm I. Not nearly as knowledgeable as you, but you look at a title of a song, and you always wonder. And it's if it's an instrumental, sort of how did they think of the title, or were they going after a feeling? Oh, going when, after when, a feeling. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, sure, an an image of of some kind. Yes, um, I, yes, that's that's what I do. I carry titles with me into the studio, and it's it's all prearranged. When a piece comes up. 
said, well, where, where are we in the titles? Oh, right here, okay. That's the name of this piece. That's it. That's it. And that's how you start the, the writing of it as well, by just the title? Yeah. Yeah. Very often. I mean, I mean nothing is 100% ever. That's that's pretty accurate, yeah. Yeah, and and most of it happens in the studio because I was also you were saying how uh, Brian Eno sort of helped you learn how that the studio is an instrument, which a lot of I don't think prior to that a lot of people thought of it that way, did they? You... I don't really know, um, but I, I give him full credit for turning my life around uh, in in that in as an artist. I mean. Uh, Look at the amount of instruments I have here. <laughs> <laughs> Do you keep a piano nearby, or it's not at all? I keep the damn thing. I had. A, I I did when when my wife and my um, very very young son um, we we bought a house a number of years ago in um, in Los Feliz, and. Uh, I had a piano there, and it was a nice piano. It was a really good one. But all it did was collect dust. And I, and I never played it. And I just, I don't know. I just, I, anyway, at some point, I, had, I got rid of it. And the movers came by, and out it went. And I put uh, a Navajo rug down there, which I still have in my bedroom. And um, every morning when I'd get up to have my cup of tea, I would see that empty space, not there, with the Navajo rug down in its place, and I would think to myself, Jesus, did I make a smart move. <laughs> I'm so glad to have gotten rid of that damn thing. So I, I, never, I, I never played it. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have any chops at all. Absolutely none at all. I play what I what I do because that's that's what I do. But um, it doesn't come from. Uh, I don't practice. Um, I couldn't. Any, I can't play anything. So why <laughs> practice what, Harold? I mean, come on. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. Because it's like you hear some musicians. It's that they, you know. It's like I get up. I play three hours a day. No, no, nothing like that. No, absolutely nothing. I cannot stand the idea of doing that. It seems like such a tedious waste of time. You're going to make me feel a lot better for when I don't write. The days I don't write, I'm just going to not never write again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to steer you in the wrong direction, believe me. This is just my own trip, I'm afraid. Uh, and and that was when we were talking about uh, John Cage and how that. But then there was another moment you were talking about how you sort of I don't want to say would it, would it be accurate to, that you rebelled against his sound because some yes. people and I, I found that really interesting because you do listen to that to John Cage and it is very gravely different. And uh, listen, I'll tell you what. Um, uh, I think it was back in about 1970, perhaps. It just occurred to me that uh, the avant-garde world of music, avant-garde music, was so self-congratulatory. 
and so much about itself and so fucking dull <laughs> that I just I'm not I'm not participating in this crap anymore ever and I kept my word and I had a, a still my closest friend is a composer a Daniel Lentz who had exactly the same idea as I did at this exactly the same time and we became very close friends, as you can imagine, once we finally hooked up together. Um, and he's still at it, too. It's, you know, like, um, we, we sneer. We sneer. <laughs> Such horrible snob. We, we sneer at the avant-garde composers. You know, like, they... Oh dear! With such brats, I mean, God, I'm embarrassed to admit that. But I am a snob and a brat. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah, but I mean, it, it it's it, to me, it did seem like there needed to be a reaction to it because it was. Oh, uh, there certainly was a, a, with me. I mean, I really reacted. I mean, I went in the opposite direction. And you'd been accused of somewhat um, killing that sort of, if that's for lack of a better word, that sort of movement of music prior to John Cage type stuff. Is that correct? I have been, yes, but um, I, I can't take credit. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can give you credit, though. Others can give you that credit. <laughs> It was you know was your childhood at all like was that music like was there no, mu- nothing no, nothing no what? art no 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 nothing nothing I I didn't um, I don't know how I discovered art and music but when I did it, it was I was the only one in the family who uh, had the vaguest inclination that I was drifting in that direction because it had nothing to do with my family at all. I mean, totally nothing. Was it like more of a working class type family? or um, Initially, it was upper middle class because my father was, a, um, he was a quite successful businessman. And he had a lot of money. And when he died, um, we didn't have any money. So suddenly we became like overnight extremely poor people, which was uh, hard to deal with as a 17-year-old kid. But anyway, somewhere along the line, I, I had heard something or stumbled across something that um, got me interested in jazz. And of course it was jazz that I heard, but I can't remember in how or why that happened. Uh, was it anyone else? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't... I, uh, but, I, I don't know how it happened. I, I don't know. I, I had a really hip friend who... Uh, but I, I, just, I discovered that friend because I had already become a, an aficionado of some kind of art life outside of my own family background. But I, I can't recall to save my life how how on earth I was introduced to it. I, I don't know. 
It's, but you, but jazz sort of kicked you off into more of oh, a... Oh, exp- God, yes, absolutely. In fact, it used to be uh, loud, loud jazz, you know, like, uh, oh, I can't think of the names, but one day, one, I'll never forget it as long as I live. It's like, it's like the um, apocryphal tale of uh, uh, St. Paul on the road to Damascus when suddenly he was struck by lightning. And, you know, his, he, he became St. Paul instead of his former self. You know what I mean? That, Absolutely. Okay, so I think I was 16 years old. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, uh, I was in summer school at L.A. High. And, uh, well, I was enrolled in summer school at L.A. High. And so were my other friends. But, man, the minute that bell rang uh, for the beginning of class, we were in a car on our way to Santa Monica Beach. And there was there used to be a DJ. Uh, there was only AM radio in those days. Uh, and this guy had... So this DJ, his name was Joe Adams, and he was a black uh, DJ, and mostly he played doo-wop and rhythm and blues and stuff like that. But it's okay, so we listened to that, you know, on the way to, and occasionally he would play something really a little bit uh, more closer to an outer boundary, shall we say, but God, we were pulling into the parking lot of um, one of the beaches in Santa Monica, and this divine, heavenly sound came on the radio. And I sat there transfixed, and I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, what what has happened? And uh, I asked my friend uh, if, if he knew who that was. And he said, oh, that's Stan Getz, man. <laughs> and I thought to myself, and this is way before Bossa Nova. I mean, it's just, you know, when he... So anyway, I, I thought to myself that this is where I want to be for the rest of my life, forever. I don't want to be anywhere else except right here emotionally. And spiritually, this is it. This is exactly where I want to be, and I still remember it with, and still get all goosey about it. (laughs) Hey, everybody! This is the middle of the show. If you can take a second out and go to the Feral Audio Conversations with Matt Dwyer page, if you can. Donate a little bit of money. I don't like asking for money, but uh, Dustin Marshall, who runs Farrell, uh, really sacrifices a great deal of his life. You know, maybe just don't uh, eat at a taco stand and give us the dollar fifty. Um, we use that money to buy equipment, to travel, to interview people. It's not like we're going and buying an eight ball of Coke. If you can't afford to donate money, and I understand that, these are tough times. If you're going to buy something and you buy it on Amazon, please use my link. Buy something on Amazon. We get a kickback. And it helps us out a great deal. Um, Also, please 
write a review of the show. If you can, go to uh, iTunes, give some stars, write a positive review. If you take a screenshot of that and then email me at conversationswiththewire at gmail.com, I'll send you some stickers. Uh, I'm going to be getting more merchandise. Um, so please help us out. Also, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer at twitter.com and uh, super duper times, Matt Dwyer at Tumblr there. Thank you. Let's get back to this awesome show. Did you, did you go and see a lot of those guys play live? Because wasn't there... Gets? Yeah, or the, or the L.A. sort of bebop. Oh, 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 God. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because sure. there was a, like a... What was the... There was a neighborhood, and I'm blanking, where there was all those... South Central. Yeah. There was like a bunch of clubs, was there not? Yeah, on Central Avenue. Yeah, and that's... Oh, yeah. Because Charlie Parker came and played there oh, for. Yeah. Did yeah. you get to see a lot of? Yes, oh did. my god! Because yeah. <laughs> I'm a I'm a I'm a bird fan. Yeah, well, I'm a jazz fan in general, <laughs> but uh, and I just I will listen to those. <laughs> I will listen to that at home and uh, all of it, and I'm just like, oh god, to have to have seen this. You know, this guy that told me about um, Stan Getz, you know, like turned me on to Stan Getz, and then suddenly I'm buying, you know, like a '78 Prestige. Uh, Album or not records, you know, singles. Stan gets quartet all the time, you know, like hearing them every, as much as I could get. But he and I discovered Jerry Mulligan and Chet Baker <clears throat> and their quartet, and they played at a small club, uh, not in South Central LA, but in uh, um, what is now Koreatown, across from the uh, at, called the Hague. The Hague. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of albums that were recorded at The Hague. Yes, yes. So every weekend, one night a week, because we didn't have any money, we would go to see Chet Baker and uh, Jerry Mulligan and sit there with our... We had to have two drink minimum per set. So for us, it was Coca-Cola. You know, we're 18 years old. So we we sat there primly, you know, like listening to these two junkies. <laughs> but it was glorious, absolutely wonderful. It's not as romantic. It's not like romanticized in my brain. It was just as magical because to me, it's like oh, it's ma- oh well, magical. I mean, it was it was well, it was real. You know, we we sat there. It wasn't like the world that we lived in. It was it was escape through Coca Cola, <laughs> <laughs> which is a lot better escape than you know their junk than, than <laughs> other kinds of coke. Yeah, I know. There there are other heroin esque. Uh, yeah, and uh, the, the the one thing that also. Uh, you you quit for a while. You or would you? I don't know if it was retired or quit in around two thousand four. Is that a, a a bad thing to talk about? I wouldn't want to. No, no, we can do that. Okay. I made a real mistake. It was because I I I didn't tell the truth um, to myself. I didn't. I was so pissed off. I had I had done a second album for. Uh, Atlantic Records, which I I thought I really did a really good job. And suddenly, suddenly, everyone at Atlantic Records uh, just, just, you know, the contract was 
blown to shit. It was gone forever. So I was left with this album, and I could not give it away. No one wanted it, and I, I was so discouraged. And my marriage had fallen apart. It just collapsed. And I had, I had a four-year-old, three, three or four-year-old son, and absolutely no prospects at all of making a living, let alone just getting by. I mean, I was, I was in a very bad place. And to be excruciatingly honest, I felt terribly sorry for myself, which is a really, really ugly thing for anybody, I think. But I, I certainly did it. So um, I told everyone that I just, I, I give up. And that, that's the end of it. The hell with you all. What a brave asshole I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I was living in Joshua Tree, and I had just been there for a rather short time. And, you know, that, that, this is a hard place to live. I mean, it's really isolated. And the food was awful. And, you know, and it's the desert. I mean, rednecks and meth labs. And, I mean, everything. You know, it was bad. It was a bad place to live. But there I was. And then I got a phone call from a friend who said... Uh, who uh, said, uh, I am going to have uh, lunch with David Sylvian. Would you like to uh, Would you like to go come along? I said, oh, God, yes. I, you know, I, this, this is one artist that I, it, I really still to this day admire more than anyone else. I really, really am an out-and-out fan, you know, a real... Sign my, <laughs> can you sign my autograph? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I was that bad. <clears throat> I never pulled that off. But anyway, I did. I had a wonderful lunch with this really, really charming man. A nice guy. A really, really nice guy. And he just charmed the hell out of me. And I was so happy to have finally after years of listening to his music, when I was an expat, when I didn't even live in this country, I would always come across David Sylvian, and I'd think to myself, Jesus Christ, that guy really, really knows what he's doing. I mean, he's really good. And I admired him immensely. Anyway, we had this wonderful lunch, and he said, what was I doing? And I said, well, I was trying to get rid of this damned album. <laughs> And he said, would you send it to me? And I said, yes, of course. And one of the pieces on it is called, um, it's a it's spring quartet, and it's called It's Steeping Near the Roses for David Sylvian. And he, he emailed or called me back and said, that brought a tear to my eye. I mean, that was amazing, Harold. You, you, really, you really got it. And he said, I would like to put out your album on my label. And I said, yeah, yes. I would like you too also. <laughs> so that's, that 
that brought me back in, you know, uh, from this fake uh, I, I quit attitude completely. It just changed everything immediately. Suddenly I was back among the living and really enjoying what I was doing. Did you think about music at, at all during that period? All, all the time. All the time. But uh, I was so depressed. I mean, I, I don't know how substantial any of that was, really. I just felt awful. I felt sorry for myself. And that's a bad place to be. I've, I've, I mean, I've been in that place, too. I know how. We all have. And then any time she has to see my girlfriend sees me without clothing, I feel bad for her and myself. <laughs> uh, is that, though, is that sort of, I mean, it feels like almost every creative person I know has had those moments where it's just, you just become crippled with self-doubt. I mean, I've... Yeah. It's, it's just... Yeah. I, I think people, a lot of people think if you get to a certain level, then it's this easy sort of breezy life. And I think, I think it just doesn't, I think there's always some kind of inner turmoil. I would like to think so, but I don't, I, I don't really know. I don't have any, any models apart from myself and how accurate, how accurate my assessment of myself is, is really an open question because I don't really think about it very much, but. I do often enough to really ponder about, you know, how real this is actually. Or am I just bullshitting again? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have a great ability to deceive ourselves. Yeah. I mean, God knows I've done it quite a bit. Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, yes, we, we do that. And it's it's amazing to me, too, that uh, you were so... I don't know, I... I, I you look at the people that you've worked with and the things that you've done and that, that you still get excited and admire artists. It's always, that is, I mean, I, yeah, I, I do. I, yes. In, in fact, almost everybody that I have ever worked with, I ad- admire beyond mere telling. I mean, I think they're just the best. <laughs> it really is true. And I am so flattered to even have been, entertained with the idea of, you know, working with them. I had, I remember once I was sitting in the, at, at the bar in Joshua Tree and my, you know, my cell phone, it was the only bar sandwich place in Joshua Tree that was hit, like people knew, uh, you know, like Concrete Blonde was there all the time. And stuff like that, you know. So this is this was one one place. This is the only place. Everything else was awful. <laughs> <laughs> but I got a I got a call, and it was from Jaw Wobble. He was the bass player for um, Jaw Wobble, um, the bass player for uh, I can't John John Lydon. Uh, oh, the Sex Pistols. You say, or uh, Public one, Image Limited. Yeah, Public Image Limited. And he said that he's putting a band together, an all-star band, and we're going to tour um, England and Italy. And I said, I, said um, I didn't even ask how much I was going to do. 
I, I imagine was, he would have hung up his phone in London and <laughs> knock on the door, and it's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he put a band together, which was so exciting. It was um, Jackie Liebside playing drums from Cannes, um, uh, Bill Laswell playing bass also, and uh, I was the piano player, not the keyboard player. And who else was there? Graham Graham Haynes, um, who played kind of electronic trumpet. What was the kind of music you, that they were? We just wing it. Well, actually, he said um, the the first quote rehearsal. It wasn't really a rehearsal, but it was um, in in London. We all got together for the first time, and I met everybody for the first time except Wobble, who was. You know, was a really good friend for a long time. Still is. And he said, um, uh, Harold, there's a piece of yours from, um, what is the name of the, uh, the room. The room. And the first piece, which is a kind of dreamy little thing, you know, like, and he says, I think we should start with this. And then it'll, and then it'll change. You know, but we'll, we'll just begin. So can you kind of get us in the mood for a second? I said, yeah, sure. So I, you know, I'm sitting there kind of dreaming. And these other guys are, you know, like getting really into it. And it sounds so beautiful. And, oh, you know, it's magic. It's just great. And then. After about half hour of that, Wobble began with his um, his uh, dub bass, you know, just like so loud you can't believe it. And it's just thumping away. And it was going on and on. It goes on and on forever. And, and Jackie Leapside is whacking the drums, and it's, you know, like. And we're all taking our turns with our bit, you know, whatever it's going to be. And we did the tour. And, uh, and I always said to myself, uh, the minute that Wobble calls up, I'm, I'm there always, forever. And, but it didn't last beyond that. But it lasted a long time, you know, like six weeks. And we, uh, England was... Uh, all the way from the south, the, the Brighton Pier, all the way up to uh, Glasgow, Scotland, and many, many little stops in between on the way north. Wonderful, wonderful tour. And then um, Italy all got canceled except for a, vi a villa in Rome, which was okay with me. Huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll take, okay, I, we, can, we can do that, can't we? <laughs> And it was an outdoor concert, and it was packed, absolutely packed, with uh, you know people who were really into wobbles, dub bass. Oh, it was wonderful, wonderful. So that was that. When you were an expat, where did where did you live? I lived in London. I lived in London primarily, and I, I bought a place in West London. 
and I had to live out of the country uh, in order to get a green card. I don't know why, but that's the rules. So I, I moved to Paris, and I was there for four months until I got noticed that uh, my green card came in, and you can come back and see the, see the, see the place you bought. <laughs> <laughs> You couldn't see it until you... you I couldn't. I couldn't. That's amazing. I could not enter England until I know. So my girlfriend, uh, um, she spent the weekends with me in Paris. But it's such a... I mean, it's only 100 miles away. So it's a short, like, one-hour trunk flight from Heathrow to to Charles de Gaulle. And uh, I would meet her there we would spend the weekend together and I would take her back to the airport and see you next week. <laughs> it, was really, it was really quite a nice life. The only unfortunate part of it was where the, uh, uh, I had to live uh, with the French, of course. <laughs> I, you know, like I hate to admit that I've never been to France, but I do like their food, wine, and films. <laughs> I like, I like everything about them actually. But the, when it comes to food and wine, nothing beats Italy. Nothing for me. Wow. And my girlfriend was of Italian extraction, and, and she, lived in, she lived in Italy for a long time and uh, spoke French and Italian. So when I went on the road or we took off to some place, she was great to be with because Whatever country we landed in that I wanted to go to, Spain, even, uh, she spoke the language. That's great. Oh, wonderful. I can't speak any. I, I, I oh, struggle I, through I, English. I, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I stumble over syntax in English. Yeah, I, I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and someone just, because when I assumed you lived in France, because yeah. somebody described you, and I'm going to butcher the word. Uh, as a vivant, is it or is that a, a sort of a vivant? Yes. Yes. I'm seeing. I embarrassed myself. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to sound. Is that? Uh, I guess it could be a put down, but um, to call you that—that's a put down. It could be. Oh, I thought it, it was uh, it, to it, enjoy the finer things in life. Yes, that—that—that's that, that, what it means. I don't know how that's a put down. Well, you know, you could be snobby about it. Because <laughs> every time I, I've seen you about the town, you're always enjoying a glass of wine. or you're That's so... true. That's true. <laughs> God knows that's true. I must do something about that someday. <laughs> In fact, I have a... You got it. You're. Uh, 
Robin Guthrie. And uh, we didn't actually get paid, but we were, we, we were put up, you know, really, really well. And it was for no money, and it was at the winery, and um, wouldn't you know what I met? Some really attractive Italian lady who said that she'd been in love with me since she was 17 years old. <laughs> My brain. <laughs> that is a really good idea. <laughs> <clears throat> so romance bloomed itself, and, and I just had a wonderful time. I, I love the country. I, I love I love everything about the uh, the whole country. I haven't seen. I've never been south of uh, Naples, so I don't. I've never been to Sicily, unfortunately, which I would love to go to someday, and I, I'm sure I will. But. I've been to Milan a million times and to Rome a million times and to Florence and stuff. You know, Siena. Love it. Love the food. Love, love the people. Love the art. Love the architecture. Are you currently recording? Or were you, did you just finish recording or are you still currently? Because I know you're going out of town next month. I am going out of town. I, I am. I am working on a. The Robin and I are working right this second on a second film for Greg Araki. And um, it's on hiatus right now because he's um, decided apparently to uh, edit to to re recut the film. And. Uh, so Robin is doing it from his home in France, and I'm doing it from um, the studio I use, which was right just a mile and a half away from here in South Pasadena. So, well, you know, that's it. And I'm going. I finished a. Uh, I finished an album uh, called Jane One to Eleven. And it's for a friend of mine, Jane Maru, who I, an artist I met in uh, 29 Palms, which is when I lived in the desert, of course, and which is 20 miles away from Joshua Tree. Anyway, Jane was always a good, reliable friend of mine, and always had great dinners and great conversation with her. And um, she's a batik artist, and uh, I think it just just brilliant. I, I just love her. I love her work. And she uh, makes little eccentric videos also. And uh, I decided that I would ask her if she would uh, want to collaborate with me on on a full album of videos and music? And the answer is yes, because it's done. Now it's done. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I'm, I'm starting um, the next round of Jane uh, next, next month in, in Missoula, Montana, which is where she has moved. So 
from Joshua, from uh, 29 Palms. I can understand your heart. <laughs> <laughs> when, where can people see those videos? In, in the... Oh, the videos will be out in November, I think. Um, the, the album itself is already out, so... I believe that's. I have that now. We were oh, listening oh, to. Do. We were listening to that this morning, actually. Oh, well. <laughs> well, um, and just to to <laughs> to, to wrap it up, it's and uh, people. You have heraldbud.com dot com. People can, and then that's where they can seek out all your music um, and actually heraldbud.com is not mine at all it's, it's not no it's, it's somebody else no but you do have a website am i in am i insane no i do not i do not it, there is a heraldbud.com and it, oh, i thought i saw it's it it's not mine okay it's not mine the best way to get hold of me is just through darla records oh okay i'm in touch with him all the time and he's he's very very good about you know, taking care of things, that, that sort of fan, fan stuff, you mean? Yeah, no, and no. buy your stuff. Oh, yes, yes, of course, yeah. All, right. all of that. Thank, yeah, very good. thank you very much for taking the time out to do this. It meant a great deal to me, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you both very much. Mm-hmm.